Hello and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. This week we'll be answering the question, how litigious is Alan Bennett? Um, as we've each written and we'll be performing a short monologue on a pedagogic principle of our choice. Uh, why, you may ask? Um, well, it's just a bit of fun, isn't it? Um, and it's also a good, cool opportunity for us to talk about some of our favourite pedagogic principles and just have a bit of fun and a bit of performing because we're all, we're lovers, aren't we? We're all lovers. We're lo- well, love well, a bit of we are um i should clarify by the way i am as always mike collins a man with a microphone um a pot of novelty um jalapeno crunch coated peanuts on his desk um and a learning designer at the open university and joining me today we have uh, i'm mark childs uh i'm soon going to be senior digital learning designer at durham university well there you go and i'm mark williams and i'm a, an a, an invited guest i would say and i'm a man without a microphone so i do apologize if i come across as a bit um strange <laughs> i don't think that's the, the microphone, microphone it's not gonna be, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's just me <laughs> And a very welcome guest at that. Um, so uh, let's kick off then. Mr. Childs, would you like to go first, please? Okay, then. Um, I was having tea with Thora the other day, tucking into a freshly opened box of Fortnum <laughs> Oh, fuck. Don't remember Alan Bennett saying fuck ever. <laughs> I know, okay. I no, he probably did in <laughs> private, didn't he? <laughs> oh, okay. oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. he did. Um, all right, then. Okay, I'll start again. <laughs> I was having tea with Thora the other day, tucking into a freshly opened box of Fortnum's entertaining fancies, when Thora paused while reaching for a third pink wafer, accosted me with a gleam in her eye. Alan, she said, I wonder if you wouldn't mind helping me with a little job. Now I've been led astray before with an opening sentence like that, but I thought in for a penny, in for a pound, and before I knew it were racing up the M6 with me, gripping onto the postillion of Thora's Harley for dear life. <laughs> Our destination was a faculty of education at an institution I didn't really reveal the name of. In moments, I realised why Thora had brought me there. The students were being taught about learning styles. Now I realised <laughs> Thora's sense of urgency. She'd taken it upon herself to travel around the country, putting a stop to that sort of nonsense. I asked her how she was going to reason with them. Are you going to point out the complete lack of evidence base for people being divided into visual, auditory or kinesthetic learners? I asked her, but she shook her head. Are you going to point out the harm that comes with promoting a self-limiting perception of belonging to a specific category of learner? But again, (laughs) she said no. There's no reason... (laughs) There's no reasoning with them at all, she told me. You put a stop to it in one place, and it just flares up somewhere else. The whole thing is like an infestation. You have to burn out the nest before it proliferates. (laughs) Then I realised why Thora had asked me to come with her. Before carving out a niche, as a writer of poignant yet comedic monologues accentuating the melancholy that lies at the heart, of everyday existence. <laughs> Anne was a very successful vampire hunter. From her saddlebag, she drew out a mallet and a stake, and I at once set about impaling the ill-informed pedagogues, whilst Nora decapitated their thrashing <laughs> Our job done, we set the bodies aflame, and then, to be doubly sure, doused the ashes in holy water 
<laughs> drawn from the frustrated fears of neuroscientists. Our adrenaline stalked by the gory violence, and then succumbed to the ecstasy of the moment and threw ourselves together in insatiable lust amongst the sudden ashes of the recently, but hopefully permanently, deceased educators. I had thought that was the end of my time combating the worst of detrimental ideas circulating academia, but apparently there is no end to the utter tosh spoken about digital natives or honey and Mumford. I've just now had a phone call from Thera. She's heard of an HR department to use personality inventories. Hang on, is that what they call them, personality inventories? Yeah, sorry. Okay, sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I suddenly thought I got that one wrong. No. I love the your monologue has footnotes. She's heard yeah. of an HR department who use personality inventories as part of their recruitment process. Luckily, I've been sharpening lots of steaks, and I just got a package of tears in the post. <laughs> okay, that's it. That was I, wonderful. It was brilliant. I, can, we, can we get to clap? I think we Amazing. I do have a take without all the fluffs in, which is really frustrating. No, that was brilliant. And, and so many, so many different, different variations of, of English language there. Regional, oh, really? about four regions. Well, I don't know. No, what don't do go you through think? four different accents there, because I thought it was all through Lancaster all the way through. I'm sure I detected Liverpudlian and, um, <laughs> and a Birmingham oh, at one point. This is so weird. I've got this new microphone, and I started doing all these um, just tests. And every time I get really declamatory, I go into a Welsh accent. It is really odd. <laughs> can, you, can you say Honey and Mumford again, please? Honey in, and in Mumford. Your... Honey, honey and Mumford. I love that. Honey and Mumford. Honey and honey, Mumford. I don't know. Honey and Mumford. Who are Honey and Mumford? They sound like a band. Um, no, what you're thinking it? of Mumford and Sons, aren't you? Oh, I am, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I would keep on getting it mixed with Honey and Co as well, which is a really nice record. Could be a cereal, couldn't it, as well? Yeah. Hmm. But, um, yeah, the Honey Monster and the Mumford Monster. Mm. Go on, you, uh, you, we were talk- you were talking about Honey and Mumford uh uh, on Friday, Mark. So you 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 fill in honey. Yeah, we kind of we sometimes use them in um, colleges. So they're they're a system for it's like a series of questionnaires of multiple choice that students do, and then it kind of is supposed to then give them their their preferred learning style. And uh, so when you're kind of teaching, you you in the in a student's personal file, you always have to put what their preferred learning style is. Um, so it is really um, quite a prescriptive thing to do. We were we were saying, weren't we, Mark, that we probably uh, we feel that that's probably common practice still to this day, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, this is why I picked on it because I thought um, that uh, and yeah. So there's there's the Honey and Mumford thing. There's another thing which is um, Kolb even has whole learning style stuff. Really? Yeah, it's basically you know the four stages of the Kolb learning cycle. Mm-hmm. He then went on to develop that by saying, well, different stages suit different sorts of learners. And again, there's no evidence for that. There's no evidence for learning styles being effective. I think sometimes you might, there's some things that you might learn more effectively through visual things and for, you know, like a, a, a graphic or something is a better way to learn some things than being told something verbally. But then that varies from the information to information. It mm. varies from person to person, different times of the day. It might depend on what that particular discipline is or how well they respond to it. So every time they've actually looked for these differences, they find that an individual differs more 
in a you know in their typical week or the typical month, then there are differences between individual people. So you might have a slight preference for one style, but it's completely swamped by just your natural shifting in changing preferences throughout the day. And that's all the evidence there is. And yet people really love categorizing um, learners according to different different sort of states and it's the same with Myers-Briggs you know you have a person that's what a personality inventory is it it's sort of um you know it says I am so much on a neurotic whatever scale and so much on an and there's no basis for this either people aren't consistently the same sort of personality in these sorts of ways of dividing them up you might as well just read that you know look at the handwriting or feel for their bumps on the head or- oh yeah but it's one of those things that makes a good story isn't it and that's always the problem it's kind of um when it, like like holistic medicine when you tell the story of holistic medicine oh you know you dilute the poison down and down so it's just a micro bit and then suddenly your body can fight that and you're like oh that sounds like a good story um and then as long as you don't think about it any further um or look for any you know evidence um, then you know it's great and and stories are nice and easy to get your head around um i've i've come across uh, people have when I sort of say, "Oh, I'm a learning designer," people go, "Oh, yeah, I'm such and such type of learner," and I go, "Sure, buddy, sure." Yeah, um, I mean that's the you know it's like well you know I, I'm Virgo and so people born in the Virgo star sign don't believe in astrology. No, no, <laughs> but you know it's astrology and all these sorts of things. People like to find labels for themselves. Sorry, Mark, you were going to say. No, I, I, I was just about to say. I guess the the real risk of it is that you're giving a learner then an identity and, and saying to that learner, you know, really, you're going to learn better using that mm. style. And you're then kind of directing that that student to to follow a particular journey rather than coming outside of it, because you're telling them that if, if they're not going to to follow that prescribed kind of learning style, that they might not learn so well. So maybe that's the danger of it, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's the, you know, well, also, just because something is the is your preferred way of learning, doesn't mean that you are going to learn better that way because you actually might learn better by being challenged and by something yeah. that's outside your comfort zone mm. and these sorts of things. Um, but the worry is that people, that there are teachers still using this. And mm. I think the reason why is, it, is yeah, it's, well, it's it tells, yeah, like Mike was saying, it tells a story. It simplifies the whole complexity of what education is and you're going well there's all these sorts of things there's different ways of approaches there's all this sort of complexity about understanding my students i know what i'll do i'll just classify them as one of four different types of people and then that will convince me that i've learned something give me the confidence to stand inside in front of a classroom because no stand inside a classroom in front of a class and say stuff because i feel i've learned something but you haven't even though you haven't learned something maybe that gives you the confidence to believe you have but and maybe that helps, like a placebo can help with homeopathic <laughs> medicine. But it's dangerous because the reason why, you know, alternative medicine's dangerous and anybody promoting it should be locked up is because mm. it prevents people from taking, from getting the genuine stuff because they're fooled into thinking they're getting something that works and it doesn't. And that's, you know, that's fraud. And I mean, mm. propose pr- promoting fraud. I'm kind of really dubious about those styles of questionnaire anyway. You know, people pick something that they feel that they have to pick in those multiple choice. And I don't think it necessarily denotes what they really are. So that, that again, is something that's flawed, I think, in that system. And they say they can detect this, but, I mean, really, it's easy enough to fake this. I mean, the people that sort of appoint recruits use these, you know, using personality inventories are the worst because sometimes – 
the actual people that want to, the people that might actually make it through and be a good job are being excluded at a stage because of something that doesn't really isn't really true. What I I I got into a, or a rant about this with somebody else who's ranting about it and um, uh, on Twitter because that's what it's good for, you know, is ranting and. Um, um, Donna Lenkloss, and she was saying, you know, these are complete waste of time. And I said, yeah, I refuse to do them. And then I thought afterwards, actually, no, I don't refuse to do them. What I do is, this is going to sound really childish, but I answer C and then A and then C and then A and then C and then A all the way through, just alternate between those two things. Because basically I'm writing caca over and over again. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> You're right. That doesn't sound childish. <laughs> I'm going to be very controversial and say that there might be a very slight benefit to learning styles. And that would be just in that if you tell a student, you know, oh, this is your preferred style of learning, and then you give them a style of learning, you're giving them a framework by which to sell, like by which to direct their own learning, by which to, to learn. I think that's always having any sort of framework is always going to be more useful than none. Thinking from a sort of a transparent pedagogy perspective. Well, you see, yes, if it was transparent pedagogy, I was saying that to somebody uh, recently, was that really what we should be doing is teaching people teaching students a bit about education so that they can recognize why they're learning things both and obviously the transparent pedagogy but i think it should be good teaching stuff and having a framework like well this is this is where we assimilate knowledge and this is now where we uh, share knowledge and create it socially constructed and all those sorts of things so giving them that sort of background to the different approaches is good but i think it should be real stuff and not the not the made-up stuff. Hmm. Well, I think also we're, we're teaching students to reflect more and more on their, their learning journey and make up their, their own minds. So I think you could actually set learners off on a pathway of education and then ask them to reflect on, you know, where they think their skills are and how they would best use them. So I think that's probably the way forward and it's more, more of an independent approach. Yeah, and, and hmm. fluid and nuanced rather than these really basic categories i mean somebody was also calling her talking about the pyramid pyramidization of education and we get it with everything we get it with blooms we get it with maslow's hierarchy of needs we get loads of these different things which has taken an enormously complex set of principles and ideas and fluid things and guidelines and turning them turning them into absolute rules and though that's ridiculous it doesn't work like that and i don't think the people that come up with these originally really intended them to be like that i know myers briggs didn't think this is just a guidance it's not actually categorizing people and it's then misused um and i think that's really uh the you know that's really the problem is that we like to oversimplify and reduce things down to make them easy to understand when they're and that's okay as a sort of guide and a sort of first step but then it's definitely what we do yeah i mean it's the first step that's fine but it's when you stick to it as if it's a real thing rather than just a prompt to get you to where you need to be, that it becomes dangerous. And we're back to that wonderful quote, which is, uh, what was it? Uh, All models are false, some models are useful. Yeah. Mm. Which is, I think, I've definitely misquoted that, but I think that was no, the story it's, it's that All models are wrong, some models are useful. That's the one, uh, yeah. False is the same thing, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, just conscious of the time, should we move along? Okay, and next up is Mr. Williams's. Take it away. So this is called Don't Get Me Wrong. Don't get me wrong, it was me that signed up for this virtual experience. I say experience, it was a lifestyle. You know, total immersion, they called it. Well, I've been immersed once before and had my reservations, but I thought, break out of the confines, expand your horizons. I just put the polish down. 
The article was one of those glossy marketing numbers, you know, all blue, red, yellow, and a splash of purple. Geometric in design with highlighted keywords. I thought, this is where I want to be. My walls were mushroom. Move forward, it said. I hadn't moved forward since performing the Okie Koki in Chiswick, and that was 10 years ago. <laughs> Anyhow, I made the decision there and then that I would go into change my experiences and move into the new world and find the new me. Crunching the last remnant of custard cream, I filled out the farm and pressed send. You've done it now, I said, and I had. It took two weeks for the box to arrive, all glowing and flashing with a note that read, here begins your journey into freedom. Experience a new world that would change you forever. They've been showing those old films. Terminator was one that I remembered and I had the vague feeling I was heading the same way. The fusion of man and machine. I opened the box to find the R10866 headset. This was to be my new home. This is where I was to live out my future. I gulped down a tepid mouthful of tea, strapped the headset on and pressed the on button. Bloody Ada. I've been here for 12 weeks now. To think, three months ago, I was pulling back the curtains to glimpse into the sordid world of neighbours, writing accusatory letters and finding crackers under the settee while reminiscing about opportunities wasted. I'd find myself recounting old tales on the stairs or at the kitchen table, gazing out into the room beyond as if artfully tracked by a camera moving 180 degrees around the place I was seated and I'd made so many dramatic pauses I was starting to lose counts. It's all changed now, of course. I've scaled new heights. I've broken free of my coffin and flown to the rafters in the footsteps of Christina the Astonishing, dwelling in an oven thereafter. I've climbed the ladder of the earth to the city in the sky, that old Peruvian mountain with its secret and precarious bridges. I've stared into the face of Icarus and witnessed despair as his wings began to melt. <laughs> On the same day, I plunged into the icy waters as the Titanic lost its foothold, witnessed the confusion and panic, then explored its rusted carcass and decades of decay, silenced and abandoned, straddling time like a frozen corpse. I'm a time traveller. I observe time and move freely within it, making connections and scanning its impacts. I've seen that when Vesuvius spewed its lava over the occupants of Pompeii and petrified them, who were, get me here, by the way, encasing them as statute, this gave a visualisation <laughs> to Freud's uncanny, the fear of being encased in the familiar patterns of life and being buried alive. I know I started to get a bit hefty here, a bit, you know, a bit on the old <laughs> academic side. What can I say? Uh, I watch the world through time and present figures and analysis. It gets better, everyone. It gets better. Um, however, there's been a change, an update in the software, a removal of limitations. Now I'm a decision maker and a creator. I no longer observe and follow, but fashion, farm and create. I find new information and carve out new worlds for inhabitants that create new languages. I build artifacts that hold knowledge and share these with other knowledge makers. In my world, the crushing of a dead leaf will create new buds of philosophies that continually grow and expand through dialogue. Objects reveal their identity as whispered stories, and the human body morphs and changes, capturing facets of experience like butterfly nets. Again, ooh, get me there. Right, knowledge becomes experience and drips over the terrain <laughs> like liquid, dissolving structures to create freer maps of thought. I think I hadn't eaten when I wrote this. I think I was <laughs> just on You haven't eaten today either, have you, Mark? Exactly. These creative movements interact with others and build cohesion to develop fairer <laughs> societies and knowledge sharing. It ends in a minute. 
Um, okay. It's this inclusivity that engineers physical space and random creative patterns of architecture to inspire and create psychological context. I haven't eaten a custard cream in months. <laughs> Are we still on the uh, monologue, or is that you? I, know, that was, yeah, um, I, yeah. I would like to point out there is a flaw in here, and before people ring in and complain, um, <laughs> I, I'm a more—I I seem to be a bit more northern at the start. I know. And I, okay. You can but two thirds of the way through, that disappeared. Yeah, and it's not—you know—so it's not like I'm trying to say that before this education I was northern, and now that I've come out of this education, I've lost that because I'm not—I'm not applying that. I think it's just that the, the stuff at the end is harder for me to read, so I lose that accent. Oh, that was wonderful! That was a magnum octopus. That was. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go, everybody. Um, this is about virtual learning because me and Mark are doing um, research into this, aren't we? Yeah. And what have we discovered? Um, well, it's interesting because, you know, my background's in virtual worlds as well. And Mark's did a lot of Second Life stuff as well in the past. It's interesting because you see a lot of the same mistakes being made again when you start moving into VR. So we used virtual worlds a lot for meeting places and teaching places. And there's a tendency amongst, oh, we mentioned this before about how um, a lot of Gwenlands start taking over and they say, let's mm. replicate the the, the uh, campus, the normal physical campus in the second life. And you go, well, what's mm. the point of that? And we're seeing that with the classrooms that are being created in VR is that they are classrooms with desks and chairs. And this is even more ridiculous because a lot of the VR stuff we've looked at to save processing power for the headsets, because most of the headsets, are, unless they're plugged into a PC, they're pretty low um, processing power. Um, your avatars don't have legs. So basically, you're all sitting down in these classrooms and on chairs where you you don't have a bottom half of your avatar, so it's all a bit it's all a bit pointless. So that sort of stuff's a bit uh, is kind of a bit annoying. But the whole idea of connecting and being in those spaces it is so much more immersive because you've got this 360 all the way around. I was talking to somebody yesterday and he's going on holiday to holiday to Wiltshire uh on thursday and he said have you ever been to avebury and i had to go um and i i couldn't say yes and or and no because i've been to avebury in virtual reality and i have been there i've walked amongst the stones and i've looked at you know and you can teleport around and get a whole idea about how it all fits together and but i haven't been there in the physical world but you know it's it's a bit like being there and it's a bit like not bit not it's a bit not like being there Mm. I think it's been interesting. I've, I've kind of found it incredibly immersive and it's been fun, you know, walking around. We've we've kind of picked up on limitations, but there are some really good aspects, kind of storytelling. We, we were looking at the idea of being in a space and maybe, you know, having notes scattered around in the space that, that, that students would have to go off and find, read them and then, you know, concoct stories or, or there'd be little challenges um, and so, so that aspect of it could be really, really interesting, couldn't it? Because um, because you're there, or, or actually being involved in a story, being a character in a story. Um, and we we're, we're kind of really talking about the impact of using storytelling narratives at the moment. So, so being part of that directly, I think, would be quite powerful. I was going to say immersion is a really interesting word because we talk about immersiveness and how immersive the technologies are, so that it's more immersive because. It's all the way around. So you've got this like breadth of your senses being engaged. Um, and it's maybe some in, in limits on immersion, be, immersiveness because of, 
you know, maybe the pixels aren't that great or they're not using them. The resolution's not that brilliant in times. But this is where technologists get wrong when they talk about immersion and they list them all the different things that make something immersive. And the thing that really makes something immersive more than anything else is narrative. And that's not mm. a technological thing. That's the way the game's designed or the story that you're in is designed and those sorts of things. So I think I'm not sure. I th- I'm getting the impression people are being aware of immersion from that sort of point of view. I'm not sure how much that's a technological thing or just that we've worked with these environments so long, so much, that we're more and more people are becoming aware of of the immersion isn't just about the technology, that what you do with the kit. It's also about how you create storytelling and things like that. I would quickly just want to point out that the the Icarus mention was, you know, we're at this stage of VR where it could go either way. So I don't know. Um, I, w- I would really like to think that it, it's going to kind of move forward quite radically, quite quickly. But sometimes these things are kind of quite faddy, aren't they? So I don't know whether uh, it's going to slip back. So I think there's a bit of a danger there. But also the, the part at the end about creating, using the software to create um, that was a reference to inclusive assessment. So, you know, we're in an education system where we direct learning, especially assessment on, on learners. Um, and we're actually now starting to play around with the idea of creative freedom. So so students, again, being able to um, really pinpoint their skills and then decide on the assessment that they want, looking at learning outcomes. So having more of a co-authorship approach. So that was the, the reference I was making. Oh, that's, in, that's, that's reminded me of, I had a little rant on Teams yesterday. So I'm, I mentioned that um, we would you know, we were the, the, about talking about more creative assessment and some of the feedback was, yeah, but some students want to be able to just do a huge binge at the end. And, um, and you know, if it's a more creative assessment, they might not have the time for that. It and, sucks to be them. Well, yes, that was exactly my response, which is, well, that's not pedagogically sound, is it? We want them to, we don't want them to be binging all the time. What assessment is about is assessing how good your learning is, how much you've learned. And if you haven't learned as much, and one of those things we're trying to teach is how to work effectively, then actually the correct response to that isn't to change the assessment, it's to give out lower grades. Mm. And that what we should be doing is looking at more creative forms of assessment because that's more inclusive and not really being driven by the demands of perhaps our current students because our current students aren't all students. They're a small subset of what all the students could be. And the ones that have been around the longest and maybe have the more powerful voices aren't necessarily the ones we should be listening to. And so, therefore, maybe that's not a strong argument. Yeah, I mean, if you ask me as a student, I just want a degree printer. Just I would be like, I want to sign up for this degree and then I want to print the degree. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm doing mine at the moment because I want to learn stuff. And I do admit I am doing a bit of last-minute binging. But because of that, I'm getting lower marks. And I accept that actually, if I was being a more competent student and working more consistently throughout the year, I would be doing better. But then, as Michael quite rightly put it, it sucks to be me. <laughs> you know, and I, they, you take, that's the thing is, those are the choice. Okay, I know that some students don't have the time. They don't have, you know, they, they're really pushed for because they're working full time in and amongst doing the degree. But and those, therefore, we need to be making accommodations. But there's a question around how much you make an accommodation for students before you then start lowering the standards of the education that you're providing for them. 
And I think having less creative assessments is one of those things that isn't sound pedagogically, even though it might actually be easier for some students to do. Well, there we go. That was my rant on Teams. I haven't dared look again in case it triggered a more hostile response. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, are we over to you now? Yeah. I, I think we are. Just, uh, thank you, by the way, Mark, for that. That's um, That was... That was a, was a wonderful uh, magnum opus. Uh, Mark's show is actually opening on the West End um, in six months' time. It's opening in v virtual reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the section where he um, essentially leaves his body, possibly due to malnutrition. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The staging uh, yeah. for it is incredible. That's a body experience. There's <laughs> wires. It's going to be amazing. There's pyrotechnics. It's going to be incredible. <laughs> Okay, yeah, so I guess uh, last of all, it's me, um, and I feel dressed like, massively underprepared compared to those two wonderful offerings, because I uh, knocked mine out uh, in my lunch break today, because I forgot we had this recording this afternoon. <laughs> I did mine um, with kind of like a stereotypical uh, copper voice, but seeing as you guys have done yours in Alan Bennett, I guess I'll just do mine in Alan Bennett as well. But, you know, if it fails, imagine it was in a copper voice and was better. I, I, I can't wait. Oh, he's getting to my Alan Bennett. Right. Hello. Oh, sorry, no, there's a click, actually. Imagine the sound of a click. This is PCI Dan Fletcher, interviewing suspect on 17th of August 2020 at 2.23pm. Assisting is PCI Harold Griblings. Uh, can you please confirm your own name for the tape? I said, please confirm your own name for the tape. A suspect has chosen to remain silent. A suspect is a 57-year-old male, a Dr. Barnabas Crump of Duffinwood University campus. Uh, do you know why you're here? A suspect has chosen to remain silent. All right, let's go through this then, shall we? I have with me a photograph of 30 little packets of powder. 30 very different little packets of powder, which is odd, isn't it, Dr. Crump? One would expect quite a few more of these, and for all of them to be around the same size. And for me to not have a photograph of them. Anything to say about that? For the tape, a suspect has gone a little bit sweaty. <laughs> now, why would that be, Dr Crump? No, I'm no chemist. But that's not what you're after at all now, was it? Let's roll things back a little, shall we? You're showing 50 people how to make these little packets. You get them all together and you show them how to make them, yes? Uh, it's a bit more complicated than that, I expect. I expect you'll want to tell them what is they're making, how the chemicals and what not transfiddle themselves. You go through the process of how to do it with them, check they understand, make sure they can actually do it, because at the end of the day, what you really want is a person that can make one of those little packets pretty damn close to spot on every time. But that's not how it went, is it, Dr Crump? It says here... You wanked on about the French Revolution for a couple of hours and how this morning on ITV is inherently fascist. It says here you directed students to get the little bag of powder method out of this book. This book right here in a reading list of 30 other books which include memoirs of Jean-Paul Sartre and four other texts on slightly different powders. For the tape, a suspect has gone abuse. So... When your little wards came to make their little bags of powder at the end of term, you'd fill their head with all sorts of twong. And how much of it would actually help them? Of course, you wouldn't know. Because you hadn't checked their understanding up to that point, had you? Nor any reflection on the way to get caught. Nope. Dump the knowledge straight into the grand finale. And here we are. Do you know what the sentence is for failure to constructively align your teaching, Dr. Crumb? <laughs> 
<laughs> That's seven years down the salt mines. Oh my god. You get one bottle of Evian a week and that's it. No complimentary Nescafe down there, oh dear me no. Says here you've already done a two-stretch for didactic lecturing as well. They'll be missing you down there. Ooh, oh, hello, Harold. It looks like Dr. Crump's ready to do a little deal with us. Uh, for the tape, a suspect has made a little water down himself. <laughs> no. You know who we're really after. Who was the qualification lead? What were the graduate outcomes supposed to be? Where was the evidence-based learning from the prospectus? Oh, best put a fresh tape in, Harold. I think he's ready to talk. Uh, this is Pedagogic Chief Inspector Dan Fletcher signing off at 2.28pm. And then imagine, if you can, once again, the sound of a click. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, can I just say, a prize for getting the word twonkin. <laughs> and wanking. I found that, yeah, I found that very delightful. Oh, my gosh. Under, but, do you know, under that kind of Alan Bennett kind of, you know, voice, I was quite frightened by your PC. <laughs> PC Dan Fletcher. Uh, we need pedagogic chief inspectors. I think that would be really good. I think people need oh. to be going. I mean, when you're doing your teach, when you're teaching practice, you know, you have people come in and they have they they observe how good your teaching is. And if you're there standing at the front talking for fifty minutes, you fail your teacher training. You know, it's that's that's how it works. So, with that, you know, there should still be follow ups and making sure that those sorts of things still ongoing on. Um, when people are qualified and are actually in the jobs doing their things. Yeah, it, it does make you wonder, doesn't it? And th- funnily enough, um, so obviously this was a, ooh, the suspicious packets of powder where they're making, which is ultimately, of course, about constructive alignment and just kind of the basics of teaching. I mean, I, you don't, I don't think you want everything too, we've talked about this before, but I don't think you want everything too constructively assigned, constructively aligned, because you do want to do these little byways and introduce your students to all the different ways that things can spin off, but you still do need to cut, you know, to to make sure that the stuff they need to know they still know, know and that kind of thing. Yeah, should, I think the, the golden path should always be visible to success. Don't get onto the I golden path so. again because we'll be back onto goddamn I, June. <laughs> I was I was actually I was actually quite pleased that those little bags of powder were, were a little bit different because. I, I kind of, if I walked into that lesson, although they would have achieved their outcome in, in a very, in a very kind of, you know, routine way, I kind of thought it was nice that they had something else filling their heads a little bit, so that they were all making slightly different variations. Maybe that was their uniqueness coming through. Ah, but only thirty or fifty submitted. Oh. Oh, well, and also this is the thing about rubrics: is they're really useful for students to know what's being expected of them and also for people marking to make sure you're all marking doing the same grade for the same sort of stuff but they can be limiting as well because then it's like well, what if i want to do something that's that's more creative and outside the box somehow and um and therefore you maybe you just need to have something that can take into account the fact that things are going to be a bit diverse but then then you would have to then align that so you would have to scaffold yeah. that creativity into your your course wouldn't you so you can teach learners how to be creative that it's safe to be creative uh, they can come up with their own kind of ideas but do that to a point because i think sometimes when you start a course you're really scared to kind of work outside of a of a of a structure and sometimes you really want that structure but then when you get your confidence then you're ready to leave it slightly and to come up with your own uh, notion of, of of what you know what the artifact is so yeah do scaffolding as well really yeah 
it's 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 that kind of it's that fundamental um, friction between um, sort of self-limiting structure, um, which you want to put on things because you want a lovely firm structure on things, but also having that lovely open creative yeah feel, which I think weirdly all three of us have talked about. Um, we've covered in some way, shape, or form in our monologues. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there is a tension there. Yeah, I, I, the comment on lecturing and doing didactic stuff is really interesting. I was trying to say I mentioned to somebody. Uh, I work with at Manchester Met, and uh, so I have like monthly just catch ups with him. And um, I was saying, you know, like well, I suppose how are you with the the whole COVID thing? How are you going to be doing lectures when you go back in September? And he was affronted. He wasn't really that affronted. He would, we don't do lectures. <laughs> it was like, how dare you suggest that we do lectures? And I'm going, that's really interesting. I'm trying to think back. When was the last time some somebody? Oh no! It's, you know where somebody was actually said that they do lectures without being embarrassed by not necessarily that they didn't do them, but they might admit to do them, but being embarrassed by the fact that they did them. And it's the same with exams. I think this is some. I think that something that's interesting that I've seen over the last ten years is that more and more people still might be doing exams here and there, but they're actually ashamed of the fact they're setting exams. And mm. I know that's. I've seen that in module teams at the OU, is the one or two people that are still being forced to do exams because of external factors go, oh, sorry, we really still have to do exams. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's bad, that acknowledged to be bad. What a wonderful sea change. Yeah, absolutely. Since when I learned, well, since I was a uni, yeah. And I think the lectures probably go in the same way that exams have. Mm. I think as well, um, I was talking to Catherine the other day and, and, and saying how important it is that creativity becomes one of the essential skills that learners have. And I think um, it's really important for them to get that sense of independence and, and to, to learn how to be creative, because I think it guarantees your chance of survival out there in the outside world when you can think creatively, think on your feet and come up with with ideas outside the box. And, uh, and I think that would be, and, and this is the, the interesting discussion, if we're at that phase now in education, it's how do we teach creativity how do you do it and how do you train uh teachers to be able to mark creative work and and to think about a marking system so it, it's not an easy thing to do but I, I think it's a really necessary thing to do and i'm just conscious of the time i guess i'll just wrap us up very quickly then um so we have uh, put learning styles in a headlock and given it a noogie um on its stupid empty head we have journeyed to the future with VR, leaving custard creams behind towards a more inclusive and creative world. Um, and we've discovered that if you're going to use your university as a front for drugs production, then probably constructively align your curriculum um, before you do so in order to get a nice consistent um, output of delicious white powder. So thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this really weird episode. Um, if you would like to subscribe to us, you can find us on iTunes um, and all of your podcasting apps. You can also find us at pedagodzilla.com. If you want to get in touch, I'm at pedagodzilla. Mark? I'm at Mark Childs. And I'm at Mark Williams. Are you on, on the Twitter, Twitter is... So is this, is these, are these your Twitter accounts? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I was just like, at least, I was going to say, at least Andrew Tuchinsky knows there's such a thing as Twitter. <laughs> I, you know, I do have a Twitter account. Oh, you do? 
Yes. Oh, okay. So what is it then, Mark? I'm not. I'm not telling you that. I'm not. I'm not saying that that is my Twitter account, though. Oh, I've got to now. I've got to now check it and see what I am. I'm sure I am. <laughs> I would. You, I would. You don't have my to. real name, wouldn't I? Wouldn't I? <laughs> well, if you want people to get in touch with you on Twitter, you can say, "Well, yes, or I'm on Twitter, but I want you all to fuck off." <laughs> oh my God, I'm not. I'm not. I'm at. I'm at mcos zero one. Mcos zero one. Oh, okay. We've hoped you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you next time on Petacodzilla. Bye bye now. Bye. Bye.